0: Hey, hello and welcome to the football weekend every Friday. We're talking over the biggest match of the weekend to come with the special guest this week. It's the Manchester Derby as Man City host Man United at the Etihad Stadium. It's a rivalry upended in recent years by City's change in fortunes after Sheikh Mansour of Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates led a takeover in 2008. Since then and particularly since Sir Alex Ferguson left Manchester United. City have reigned supreme
1: Manchester City is still alive here Balatelli Aguero 23
0: is the city treble year. Champions of England, FA Cup winners and now, at last, champions of Europe. But it wasn't always this way. There was a stretch from September 1989 to November 2002, when Man City did not defeat Manchester United in any competition. And for many long decades, the state of play was torture for city fans like Colin Schindler author of the best-selling memoir, Manchester United Ruin My Life, and now host of the podcast, Football Ruined My Life. Colin, thanks for joining the Football Weekend.
1: Well, thank you for asking me, Jack. And hello to you, and hello to America.
0: <laughs> so go- I want to go way back to the beginning, because you have the benefit of perspective over many decades as a fan And I just wanted to ask you, what is your earliest memory as a fan of the Manchester City Sky Blues?
1: Well, it's an appropriate question because my very first, the very first match I went to, hence my first real memory, was December the 31st, 1955, when I was six years old, six and a half to be precise, and I was taken to watch the first match I ever saw was Manchester United versus Manchester City at Old Trafford. I went with my parents and like everybody else who starts at that age, you get involved mostly with the crowd and the noise. You've never seen so many people in one place before and the the lights coming on at at four o'clock or so and the the atmosphere that that engenders and the noise of the goals and and just everything about it is so incredibly exciting. And I suppose to an extent I've always wanted to hang on to that. That kind of early romance should stay with a fan for the rest of his life. I mean, no matter what the, you know, inevitably ups and downs of the team you support. But I think the romance of the game is terribly important. And that's, sadly, is something that that's, I've not been able to hang on to.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems like when you first started out, uh, there was some competition between the two. Um, there's, a you know, the popular understanding is that city were always also rands and united were always the powers Uh, but there was a stage in the 60s where there was a phenomenal man city team um, led by mike summerby and by colin bell uh, that very much competed with their crosstown rivals Um, before we get into the darker times that you experienced i would love to touch on those days of of city fandom
1: well, just to give even more historical resonance, I mean, before my time in the 30s, City with the Team, United with Nothing, and City with the Team. And, and it's kind of right that the pendulum swings. I mean, the, the terrible thing is when it swings significantly to one side and stays there for a long time. I mean, you know, the, the, the essence of a good two two team town, if you like, is the fact that it, it goes between the two. And I'm trying to think of an American. Uh, The problem, I love baseball, so it's not quite the same. But I do think that if if, um, the Yankees and the Mets were in the same league... Which they are now more than they used to be. There used to be absolute, you know, complete division between the American League and the National League. And they only met players at the All Star game or whatever, and in the World Series, you know, in the playoffs at the end. That's when you met met the opposition. But of course, in, in football, it's there all the time. So you are constantly drawn towards the other side. Because you can't avoid them if you live in the same. I grew up in Manchester. My brother was a big, and still is at the age of eighty-one, a big United supporter. So I grew up in a divided household in, in that sense, and and that's okay because you know my brother and I have got on very well together, and. We, we we don't speak about each other's problems you know when it's going through he's going through it now and i never i never tease him or taunt him we've always behaved responsible to each other but the feelings are very very intense now your question jack was a, was a good one about those earlier days and we were coming again rather like what happened in 2012 when on the aguero goal that presaged a whole new uh, era for Manchester City the, it, it, it happened uh, early on in the 50s and 60s because when I first started City were kind of as good as United and then there were both we're, the City won the cup in 56 and United won the league in 56 and then we had the terrible terrible Munich air disaster and that's interesting because I've talked about this before as a City supporter you felt the loss of these eight United players killed in a plane crash. Uh, as much as if you were a United supporter. And that United the City was not a United tragedy, it was a Manchester tragedy, and we all felt it. And then we both, so we had a really poor team in the late 50s, early 60s. United recovered more quickly from Munich than we did uh, from having just having a bad team, and we were relegated in 63. United won the league title in '65 and '67. They won the cup in '63, and they had three fantastic players in George Best, Bobby Charlton, and Dennis Law. So they were the kings of Manchester. So when I was when I was 16 in 1965, that was the time that the Joe Mercer and Malcolm Allison joined forces, came to Manchester, took over Manchester City, and de- bought cleverly, trained differently just infused a completely different sense of what a football team should be like playing in blue shirts and we suddenly had almost immediately terrific success. We did it without the money that they did it with in in, in the in the recent years, but we did it with spotting talent like Colin all Colin Bell and Francis Lee and Mike Sambit all played for lower division teams. They had to be spotted for their potential, not just bought for millions and millions and billions of dollars from the top teams in Europe. They just had to be found in the lower leagues, and that's what we did. But it meant that you felt part of this process of discovery. And that was something you can't get if you just buy your way into, into great footballers. You 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 develop them, it's a different relationship. You watch them grow and you grow with them. So Inevitably, with most men, the age of maximum support, if you like, emotional commitment, is between 15 and 25. You know, In other words, late teenagers where you can move around and watch the team and you have enough money to do so, and getting married and having children and then finding other things in, in your life that stops you doing that. I was incredibly lucky that that team you mentioned, the Somerville Bell Lee team of the late sixties, early seventies, coincided with those years. So I actually was devoted to them, and in a sense, they are still my team. And if I move my head to one side, you, your listeners can't see it, but you can. On the on, can you see by the side of the bookshelf? Yeah. There is a little photograph of Colin Bell, and that was bought in 1968 when we won the championship, and he's followed me all around the world. Wherever I've lived, that's gone up in my, my room, this Colin Bell thing. So they, they were a great side. They were a, an exciting side. They were a counter attacking side. They were very different from the Guardiola side. They didn't have the possession, didn't want it, didn't need it, attacked in a different kind of way. But they were my side, and they've, they've remained my side ever since.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the George Best uh, United team, and they won the European Cup that year in 1968 when City won the league. Um they he, I, I learned recently that he and Mike Somerby enjoyed a, a real friendship off the pitch. Um, is that was that, did it feel differently at the time that that players from different teams could be friends? Was the idea that they couldn't be friends something that emerged in the 80s and 90s when these rivalries and the fan disputes took on a different tenor? Um, did it did it feel strange that, that you saw them together in public and it was it was nothing to them?
1: No, it, it felt not. only were they friends. I mean, George Best was actually Mike some of his best man at his wedding when he got married in '68. Uh, not it did not feel strange at all. Notably, and I think this is a really significant factor, the city manager at the time, Joe Mercer, and, and United's manager, Matt Busby, had been friends. Had been both been players in the 1930s. They had both known each other well, internationals in the 1930s. One Scottish, one, one English. They'd both been through the war together. They'd both started their managerial careers to get, you know, they, they were, fr- and on Saturday nights it was well known. They, they would, they lived quite close to each other, and they, and, and Busby and his wife, and Merce and his wife used to go and eat at an Italian restaurant between their two houses, you know, and, and it was very common for that sort of thing to happen. Nobody minded, people rather liked it. We, it was like my brother and myself. It was within the context of a kind of wider family. And that. what you're quite right. I mean, the poison, whatever word you want to give it, the, the you know, the, the bile between the two sides and the supporters came in in the 80s and 90s. And it's one of the reasons why... I have always, despite the trophies, I've always thought Busby was a greater man than than Ferguson because Ferguson found that a very useful device of of us against the world and building up, you know, that kind of hatred of City, but more hatred of Liverpool, obviously, during his era. That's his way of motivating players. We didn't do that in the 60s. That's not the way we behaved and we were a better society for it, in my opinion.
0: So after that, you know, stage of success, there was a period of decline for City. I've seen it described for City fans who lived in Manchester at the time as you're like a a kid in a, with your nose pressed up against a candy store as a, or a sweet store as you would call it. Um, is that how it felt that you were forced to watch from up close as the enemy took home the honors?
1: It was kind of okay in the, in the beginning because um... They didn't win much, United in in the 70s and 80s, uh, whatever they were doing, they didn't, their their holy grail was the league championship and they didn't win it again until 93. And so until that moment, it it was actually okay. But obviously, when Ferguson started winning, and and was, I mean, you know, I, I think he'd say the same thing himself if he were here, he would say... I was very lucky that I got those great young players all coming through at the same time, and they, you know, having uh, Giggs and Neville and Beckham and Bot and the rest of them, they they just came. That, that was a fantastic class of '92, they call it. He was he was for you know, you can't you can't create that. You can develop it, but you can't create it. And 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 he was fortunate in having that that gift given to him. But having said that, obviously he did a an outstanding job as a manager in terms of winning trophies but the, the atmosphere had changed the atmosphere in the 90s was and has continued to be full of bile and hatred and one thing that i absolutely loathe i mentioned deliberately the the munich thing that sense of people who lived through munich as i did i was 8 when it happened and it it was an it was a, a, a tragedy for us on the other side of the city as much as it was for united and when city supporters started making aeroplane noises and waving their arms about to imitate aeroplanes, I just thought that was despicable. And I still do. I just think that's outrageous. And it's, it's ignorant and bigoted, and they, do, they weren't there at the time, otherwise they, wouldn't, they would know that was not the way to behave. And it's just part of, of the way society has moved. It might sound like an old man, you know, um, and it is, an old man talking about times past and a better time previously. but in that respect, if no other, I think that's undoubtedly true it was a it, it was a more humane more tolerant existence between fans. You supported your team and you recognized the fact that, that they you know they, they lost sometimes a lot. but we also recognize that only f- very few teams can win a trophy at the end of the year and there wasn't this demand for managers to be sacked every single time they didn't win a trophy you know, and that now happens. And I just, I don't, you know, I personally don't like it. And it's part of the changing nature of the Derby regime that, 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 that we're going to talk about now.
0: Yeah, there, there's a common joke that, uh, you know, City fans are from Manchester, United fans are from everywhere else, including London. That's obviously a stretch, but is and there-
1: Zimbabwe and probably possibly New York.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, they are global. Uh, which City are now, too, I, I suppose. But,
1: well, but absolutely, yeah, of course. of course. From,
0: you know, when the there was the rise of Sir Alex Ferguson, as you say, and the rise of United as, as probably the premier force in English football for a couple of decades, were there class distinctions or geographic distinctions, or was there more to the rivalry than just this dispute over who had a better football team? Was there a feeling among City fans that they represented the roots of Manchester in some way, the working class roots, and do they have any claim on making that kind of distinction between them and and United fans?
1: Well, that's it, it, an interesting question, and I, I, I hope I'm not going to bore your listeners with 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 the answer. In the 1930s, it certainly was different. Um, there was there was a dif- difference of religion and and social background. In the sense that United were placed in a particular part of Manchester by the docks, and rather like Liverpool, it attracted a lot of Irish, and hence Catholic, um, workers who became supporters of their local club, and and Busby, you know, signed a lot of Catholic players and a lot of Scottish Catholic players at that, like the Paddy Crear and so on. Britain a city came from from the other side of the city much more inland and and they were originally started as a church team as a Protestant church team. Now that you know that that distinction probably survived until the second world War but after it it had no real significance and obviously, it's not anybody knows who I am. Knows I'm Jewish. So I mean, my brother's Jewish, and we split fifty-fifty on the on the red and the blue. So it has no relevance now. It did then in its historical origins. It certainly did have a have a, have some kind of bias, but but uh, that doesn't apply any longer. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you. You talk in the book about growing up Jewish in Manchester um, in those times. By so by that time, you you felt that there were no sort of ethnic or religious distinctions in terms of the fandom those things had broken down uh by the time that you were a fan going to the stadium and going to school or did you still feel that um energy within it
1: no there was there was no sense of um it could hardly be anti- anti-Semitic when half the Jews supported United and half the Jews supported City. There was no anti. I grew up in a very, very protected, unfortunate environment. I mean, we are seeing the end of it now. You know, we want to move into politics of the day of today. But I grew up post-war, post-Holocaust, uh, in which the Jews assimilated. You know, my mother chose very english names for me and my brother colin and geoffrey no sense of biblical traces there and she wanted us to to you know whatever we were in the house when we were jewish outside the house we were english and we we merged with society and i've never ever felt any sense of discrimination for being jewish and i've never hidden the fact that i am jewish i've been very fortunate i think it's changing and i think my grandchildren may have a separate experience but Growing up was absolutely fine. When would
0: you sort of pinpoint City's decline as a club from the days of competing for titles to a stretch of decades where not just did they fail to compete at the top, but they they suffered relegations. There were, um, you know, misuse of funds, whether it was just poorly spent on transfers and all the rest. Do you pinpoint a moment or two where the trajectory changed?
1: Yes, I do. And ironically, the man responsible was the man responsible for the rise in the first place. It was when they, this, we had this fantastic coach called Malcolm Allison, who worked brilliantly as number two to Joe Mercer in the glory days of the late 60s and early 70s. He was city were doing okay, but they weren't winning. They, they, you know, it was felt they could still go up to the next stage in the late seventies. And the chairman, a man called Peter Swales, who uh, is not regarded with any by any city. You do When if you want, if you want to, don't. I don't like Abu Dhabi. But going back to Peter Swales, I tell you, it will be a terrible, terrible thing. And he thought it was a brilliant idea to, to bring Allison back and to make him not just the coach but the, but the manager. And it was a mistake. And Allison and, and wanted to start again. We had a perfectly decent team in, in the late 1970s. And he sold it. He broke it up and he sold it off because he wanted it to be his. And he thought he spent all the money he couldn't have first time round. He spent on players of inferior quality. He'd lost the magic. He lost the ability to spot the really good players and bring them through. And it was from then. So we spent all the money. We had no, you know, we spent everything in the late 70s. And from the 80s onwards, we had no money until Abu Dhabi came in 30, 30, 30 years later. Uh, we had no money. We had, didn't have very good players. We were constantly, we had occasional youth teams that did very well. We had one in the mid 80s. And they put them in the first team very, very quickly. And of course, the, the competition was too intense for them. And they failed. they didn't they didn't do what we were. if they could have been fed in like Ferguson did or like Busby did, who's to bring your young players on and, and give and surround them with good senior players in the way that, that Guardiola's done for Foden and people like that, you know, they, they, then they will blossom. But he, he put five of them in the team. And they, it was, they were kids, I mean, and they were beaten, and the crowd got on their backs, and they lost, and they got relegated, and it just, it just when things went from bad to, to worse, and we couldn't somehow get our heads above water, and it, we had a series of poor teams, the support was really quite good for a terrible team that it was, and it sort of culminated in, you know, it was a coincidence. But I published my book, Manchester United Ruined My Life, which is mostly autobiography, but it was obviously based on the idea of a football team going through a terrible time, and I'm trying to compare my life outside football with my support of the, of, the, of the club. And we went through a terrible time in the late 1990s and were relegated to the third tier of the league. And in fact, the book came out as that relegation happened. And in fact, it couldn't have come out at a better time because the nostalgia for what was impelled people to buy the book, which is what turned it into a bestseller. So I was actually quite, in that sense, very lucky, though I would have swapped it very quickly for, for a successful team rather than a successful book.
0: What was the darkest period of your time as a City fan? Was it going through eight managers in, the, in a decade? or?
1: Oh, I, I think they are the, the, when Ferguson was at his most triumphant and triumphalist, that was the worst time because there just seemed to be no... I mean, they were a young side when they were winning, and he had endless amounts of money because, because they were winning things and they were successful and they got sponsorship. And they, they timed their run in the 90s. to co- it, it perfectly coincided with the Premier League and the television rights and Sky Television. And suddenly, you know, United were a winning side and an attractive side and a young side that seemed to go on forever. And one of the things I do give Ferguson credit for is he changed the... You know, over the course of 93 to... 30, you know, the next 20 years, when he was winning trophies, he changed that team two or three times. And he brought... But he did it the right way. He brought young he brought players in and put them into a team that was winning and was successful and was uh, had senior experience. And and it worked. I mean, he was... Great. And he just felt it would go on forever and ever and ever. And... It would have done, to an extent, if he hadn't left and, and Abu, Abu Dhabi money hadn't come in. I mean, I, you know, I despise, as, as I will happily tell you, many things about Abu Dhabi, but clearly the money made a difference because the football had changed. It was not possible to win like Alison and Mercer did with very little money, but very shrewd signings. You really couldn't do it unless you had pots and pots and pots of money. And that's what made... That's what makes it all predictable because, you know, the great thing about um, one of American baseball is that, that, and probably other American sports I don't know so well, is that you've got things like salary caps and you've got the draft system and you've got things that equalise. So you don't know necessarily, it's not guaranteed at the beginning of the year who's going to win the American League or the National League, who's going to be in the World Series. Whereas you know you know, you know who's going to win the Premier League. It's one of the three or four clubs at most, usually just one. And it's boring and it's dull and it's counterproductive. And ultimately, people will get fed up of it. I mean, because that's, that's inevitable.
0: Yeah, I think the way, the size of your wage bill is almost directly correlated with how you'll finish yeah. every Premier League season. Exactly. Um, when Sir Alex came in, he sort of reoriented or at least focus Manchester United's ire at Liverpool and their attention at Liverpool. Did that feel like a departure? And was it, if not insulting, sort of depressing to sort of be ignored almost by your big crosstown rival as irrelevant?
1: You're absolutely right. That was exactly the way. What do you mean the big rivals with Liverpool? The big rivals with us, but we weren't even worthy of being the big rivals anymore. And I was, you know, you're outraged, absolutely. It was depressing and frustrating and irritating and I was incensed that we weren't the proper rivals because, I mean, that's obviously how the way... We, you know, you could have a rivalry between Liverpool and Manchester in town versus town, but the idea that United fixed their, their, their sights solely on Liverpool Football Club and not on the to- the team in the same town as them, that annoyed me, which is, again, you know, I give Abu Dhabi the credit for the money that they... Ferguson ended up calling them the noisy neighbours and he was, he dismissed them initially and then eventually had to sort of, and one of the great moments of my life was actually, if you ever played the Aguero goal, this is the moment where very shortly, within a minute after that the cameras of the, the games were cutting between I think it was Sunderland where United were winning and, and City at home who had just turned their game around having lost 2-1 to QPR they then won the game with Aguero's goal and Ferguson had gone on to the... The, the Sunderland-United match had finished slightly ahead of us, and Ferguson had gone on to the pitch to congratulate the players, because as far as he was concerned, City were drawing 2-2, which means United had won the championship. And somebody goes onto the field and whispers in his ear that City have won. And that's one of the great... Because we all knew... Before, it's like a Hitchcock movie. You know before the characters know what's going to happen. And that is fantastic. And that was one of the great, the great moments of my life. And I'm sorry to be negative about Ferguson, but he deserved that. He did, you know, for the things that he said and did, he deserved that moment of humiliation. Absolutely, he did.
0: As an Arsenal fan, I, I share your healthy disdain for Mr. Ferguson. Also, any, anytime Jose Mourinho gets his comeuppance, I can't resist uh, dining out on that as well. After all, he said. Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: agree with all that. presumably, you weren't the person who threw the pizza at Ferguson. There was some <laughs> Arsenal player who didn't that did was, that. Well,
0: that was my favorite. That was this man actually behind me. says Fabregas. Oh, he, fair he, enough. Right. He's he's since admitted to it. I think the Battle of the Buffet. Um, but uh, you know, there was a a foreign takeover, a non English owner who came in. But at first, it was not Abu Dhabi. It was Thaksin Shinawatra, the Thai. No. Um, I guess politician and businessman who ended up being more than that as well uh in terms of the descriptors you could apply but did that at the time feel like a new era of its own or did you still feel like you were on the merry-go-round
1: no that that actually was the moment or not only not only was he was here uh, on that list of amnesty international he was he didn't actually have the money. He he bought a lot of players, but he bought them on you know higher high purchase. He put you know ten dollars down, and the rest was on his credit card, and he couldn't pay off at the end of that. I mean, that's why he sold it so quickly, because he couldn't do it. And besides, he didn't buy particularly great players. And you know, at least when Abu Dhabi came in, they did have the money, whereas Shinawatra merely pretended he had the money and and was an awful man as well. So the whole thing was a nightmare, and that was, that certainly. Uh, for me and for a lot of other city fans who had some moral fibre, that was the beginning of the change. Where if we are being hawked around like a Victorian prostitute, you know, and I, I, it felt really uncomfortable. I didn't like it. I didn't want it. And you know, I, I maybe I wouldn't have wanted to go back to the terrible days of the 1990s. But we did have some integrity at that point, and we have none now. We have a lot of trophies, but no integrity. And that's that's my. That's my unfortunate take on it. Others can calm Plenty of football fans look at all the ones in Newcastle. They can compartmentalise. They can say, "No, it's terrible. You shouldn't go around murdering, murdering journalists and chopping them up, putting them in black plastic bags like Tony Soprano." You know. You, but you know, look at what they've done. The players they've brought. Look at the new manager. Look at the football we're playing. And they can somehow compartmentalise that it doesn't really matter where the money comes from if the result on the field is so enticing and, and successful. And I've never been able to do that. It's never seemed to be, to be worth the candle to support a team that, that is so mired in that kind of controversy, however brilliantly its players play.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you about the source of the money powering all of Man City's success. I mean, would you feel differently if it was just an you know, English petrochemical billionaire as, as Manchester United have just attracted or an American billionaire as owns uh, Liverpool or, or Arsenal, is it the specifics of uh, the the background of who's come in, or is it more about the um, like immense power that? Um, some people have in our society to take control of these things almost single-handedly.
1: Well, I, I'm not crazy about the American hedge funds managers, you know, who own the club. I, you know, I think my own feeling is it should be like Germany, where in Germany the, the clubs in the Bundesliga cannot sell more than the 49% interest to foreign foreign owner. I mean, that that's how I would I would see it. Uh, does it make it worse? Yes, it probably is because although I mean the Glazers, however, you know, whatever you say about the Glazers, they didn't put people in prison far as I'm aware. And, you know, there could be all sorts... You can say all sorts of horrible things about the American owners, but you can't say that that's, that's who they were, that they were... There. So the battle... You know, the Premier League has become a battleground between american hedge funds and oil rich nation states and it's and it's no longer the english football league i mean it's not it's not what i grew up not only no, just not what i grew up with it's not anything i can i can i can look at it with any sense of pride also oh you know it's the best league in the world the way they do say you know, they do say that it's the best league in the world and everybody loves the premier league and look how much the television rights are worth in overseas countries yes but I, you know that none of that Resonates with me at all, but I'm I'm prepared to accept. that I'm 74 years old and antediluvian, and not every not everybody shares my point of view. To which they are entitled. My problem is that I, you know, I'm not entitled to my point of view, though they're entitled to theirs. And I think what it is is nervousness. It's one reason why I've never been on social media because I don't want the death threats that that, 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 that come. I've never been on social media. and I'm not available for anything other than this kind of conversation. Um. And I just I just hate the bile and hatred that that's come and it's come out of football turning into a different game than the one I grew up playing and loving. And I love the game. It's the stuff that goes on outside of it that, that I just found so hateful. And I can't help but say it. You know, I think it's a conspiracy of silence that allows these clubs to get away with it.
0: I mean, I, I am curious about the first couple of, major victories that City had after the takeover. You know, the first major cup final in 30 years, first win since 1976 with the 2011 FA Cup. Uh, you know, a 6-1 victory over United at Old Trafford the next season on the way to that Sergio Aguero goal to win the Premier League title on the final day. Um, in a vacuum, I would think that those moments felt like water in the desert for Man City fans but oh, was, yeah, well, for mo- for was there still a purity it. to yeah. it for you? Yeah.
1: No, 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 it didn't. I, Cause I knew who they were as soon as they came in. I knew exactly who they were and, and and didn't like, I mean, the first thing they did, I wrote a big piece in one of the English uh, papers about my, the feelings I've just expressed. Uh, I got a lot of uh, abuse, uh, but through through the, the paper, you know, it didn't come to me personally. Um, Uh, And the club took all my books out of the bookshop and wouldn't put them back in again. And that kind of mean, petty spitefulness. You know, I was a fanatical city supporter 50 years, 60 years before they'd even heard the words Manchester City. How dare they? How dare they? What an appalling bunch. And that's kind of how I still feel. Although, you know, I'll own up again to another to another set inconsistency, which is that you've asked me to talk about City on the, on the eve of the, the Derby weekend. And the one game in the year that I watch is the City-United games because you put the City, the blue shirts and the red shirts on a football field and all the old feelings come back. It's, I can't stop that. The power of the emotion of the football is so great that for 90 minutes twice a year, it overcomes all the prejudices I have elsewhere. By the end of the game, it's different. And certainly if we've lost or not won, uh, I feel badly about it. But this was the time to prove that we're the better side. Uh, and I've never... I, I, I still take more pleasure in watching United lose... In most of the season than I do in watching City win because City wins City wins are, are so predictable and boring and United losing just gives me a sense of great joy and glee as if City had won a, a trophy in its own way so that's where I am with that I love the derby matches because I can actually watch my club and allow myself to, to, to support them in the way I've always done.
0: Yeah I was going to ask about the predictability there's the old saying uh, typical City to describe the absurd and unpredictable results the team could produce Uh, i think in 1957 58 they both scored and conceded 100 goals in a season um yes do you miss that even though typical city also implied horrific absurd defeats do you miss that unpredictability of the typical city that anything could happen where now it doesn't quite feel that way
1: well, well, I, I do. I have to be honest, Jack. I, I do, I do, because it's it's very few city fans would say the same thing. How could you possibly want to be beaten nine-two at West Bromwich Albion, which we were when I was in that season, fifty-seven, fifty-eight? I mean, no, no, well, clearly, I don't want to, but there is a sense in which every every triumph was was to be savoured because it was kind of unexpected or it's kind of, you know, it, it wasn't guaranteed before you start. And now, you know, I mean, I, I actually always hope City go a goal down because that at least might, there might be a game. If City get score first, they, they simply don't lose games like that. They, they just, they just don't. I mean, it's a Cape once a once in a blue moon, but they, it, it's very rare. And there is a predictability about the whole Premier League and the whole modern British football. But particularly City are such a, a great side that the, that the enjoyment of the spectacularly peculiar, has, has, they don't allow for that. I mean, that does that's not allowable in the context of, of what's happened. And that's something, you know, that me that make it clear that, that the American influence here I have some problems with because their intention is rather like Major League Baseball, you know, and, and all the major leagues, you don't want relegation. You, don't, you want the, the safety and security of knowing that the club in which you've invested billions and billions of dollars will be there in the same place next year. We'll have another go at winning it, but we're not going to be out of um, Well, no, the whole point about England is that that pyramid is the strongest element of it. The danger of having a bad season, being relegated and starting again and coming, I mean, that's what makes English football... I think, so much better because of the unpredictability. is sport. It's, a, it's supposed to be a game in which two teams take place and there's a fair chance one will win the fair chance the other one will win. That's what makes it interesting. If they if it's guaranteed that, that whatever happens, they can't be relegated and nobody can take their place, then you've, you've lost one element of the danger that makes the g- g- game into a great sport.
0: Yeah, I must say, I, in my newsletter where I recommend matches to watch each weekend, uh, uh, every Friday, I rarely recommend a City match because I can't in good conscience say that it's going to be exciting. It, you know, it's even, to me, and maybe this is just my bitterness as an Arsenal fan, I, I just feel the way that uh, you, City control the game, which of course is what Mikel Arteta's Arsenal are trying to do, but it ends up being feeling a bit formulaic to me, and there, there isn't the... Harem, scarum feeling that you get even from Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool, who have been very dominant in their own way. There's still a verticality to their game, and you know the heavy metal football, as Klopp would say. I just I'm not moved in the same way, even though I acknowledge that Kevin De Bruyne is probably the best player of the last decade to step on the on the pitch in in the Premier League. It doesn't move me in the same way somehow.
1: No, well, I'll give you two games at Kenilworth Road this year. One last night that we're talking the day after, when when City have won six-two and Haaland, scored five times, and one earlier this season when Arsenal, you know, came back from the dead, and won in the last minute with a goal by Declan Rice to win four-three. Well, I know which game I'd like to. I, I would prefer to have watched if I were, you know, if i dropped down from Mars and came to watch a game of football. I'd prefer to watch the. Um, the Arsenal game and not the City game because, you know, Luton we're never going to catch us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's also a popular meme online that's something along the lines of maturity is knowing not to turn on the City game when they're losing 1-0 because even then you, you, you can't expect them to lose. They, they always come back. They always come back.
1: They do. They do. They're never, they never. And, you know, that, they are a great, I wish I loved them. I can't, I, I can't love them. And I think, I, I think that's quite widely shared. You could, I've always admired them because they are such a superb team and he's a superb manager. I don't love them. I, I, you know, you love somebody for their faults as well as their virtues and you, you know, can't feel that way about the current city or the current manager about it. it, it, you know, it his, his whole intention is to remove fallibility from the game. That is, that is his absolute intention. And that, that may be his intention, but it doesn't make for a great sport.
0: Well, you, you mentioned that this weekend is the one match you always tune into. But I'm curious whether in recent years you feel that the rivalry with Liverpool has taken precedence in the way that uh, Manchester United's uh, rivalry with Liverpool once took precedence, as we discussed. Um, do you feel that because it was down to Klopp and Guardiola City and Liverpool for all these years that Manchester United have taken that place in the shadows more that City once occupied or is there still a special place for this match
1: no I don't feel that about Liverpool at all I uh, I feel absolutely about you know about United still um I'd rather like Liverpool I mean i rather like what Klopp's done, I like Klopp. My dentist doesn't like Klopp because he thinks he's got too many crowns in his, in his, his mouth. But um, I've always thought he looked, <laughs> he was a fine advert for, for good dentistry, but apparently he's not. Um, no, I, I think, see, the difference is that Klopp gets Liverpool. He gets it. He understands the culture and the history. Guardiola's come from the outside and doesn't really care much about Manchester. I mean, he's no. I mean, on on um, Sunday at the League Cup final, Klopp took his Liverpool team, and they were singing "You'll Never Walk Alone" with the Cop, you know, on the terraces. That kind of bond, between a community bond between the players and the club, and the club and this crowd, is absolutely essence of Liverpool, and that's something that Shankly started ages and ages ago. But it's something like you can only admire. I don't feel negative towards Liverpool at all. I feel negative towards United for a, for 70-odd 70, 70 years. I've disliked Manchester United, so that, that hasn't changed at all and certainly won't change this weekend.
0: Well, looking ahead to the match, do you foresee any result other than the obvious?
1: Well, I always like it when they lose. When they lose the game before... I'm pretty sure they get because they don't lose two games in a row. I mean that's just, just almost never never, never happens. So I always would, I would kind of have preferred them to be knocked out of the cup on uh, last night because that would have you know wound them up to an, a pitch that would take United to, to, to pieces. So the only thing that's going to stop us is complacency. And that's that's the, you know they are better than everybody else and they know they're better than everybody else. And it's simply complacency. And United have had this most peculiar knack this year. They've won a lot of games in the last minute. And, and, and you know, undeservedly, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, but they have won a lot of games in the last minute. And there's always the chance that City can mess around and mess around and be 1-0 up and somehow somehow give a goal away and it'll end up with a 1-1 draw at home and that's really dull and depressing and boring and um, it shouldn't have happened. It can happen. I mean, there is that possibility but, you know, 90% of me says it will be a procession. United are not a good, they're not a good team and they are vulnerable as Fulham showed last week. Can't believe that Guardiola would get it wrong but he did manage to lose to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, quite Regularly, which always surprised me because I didn't, you know, they could have won three trophies that year and it would not have impressed me if they'd lost twice to United. That's, I judge the season on how City played against United. They had a very good win, 3 0 at Old Trafford before the turn of the year. This is the return match at home. We should win it, and if we don't, I will be deeply disappointed.
0: Well, I do look back on a few occasions. Yeah, you're right to point out Ole had some victories. I think Jose Mourinho had a sort of Pyrrhic victory to deny City winning the title on at Old Trafford one year when Paul Pogba came up with a couple goals, if I'm not mistaken. But it does seem few; they seem few and far between these days, where, where Manchester United show up and make this a proper match.
1: They're not, they haven't been a team since Ferguson left and Ferguson left them, it has to be said, in a bit of a state, you know. I mean, he left them, he didn't really care. I mean, the great thing about Guardiola, I said, well, one of the great things, is that if he were to go at the end of this season or next season, you do have a sense that the club has been very well constructed and there are players coming through. And, you know, if they, get, if they make the right choice for the new manager, they will continue some kind of success. But Ferguson left them in a terrible state and walked out and... Uh, the whole thing, it, it's not a surprise not, not a coincidence rather that the, the, it all collapsed the moment he did so
0: well as an Arsenal fan I, I surely hope that United can get it together at least for one match and do us a favour but my, my hopes are, are very small but uh, Colin, just
1: concentrate I, on winning your own matches that's, that's <laughs> the best advice I can give you just leave us alone and just make sure you win your games
0: that's true. We do come to the Etihad at the end of March, I believe, March 31st. So Well, that
1: would be, an, uh, you know, if you show up this time, because you, haven't, you know, haven't really troubled us for quite a long time, I, you know, it'd be lovely to see a proper match between two great sides. That would be lovely. Mm-hmm. I'm not, Especially not, not on your fit. turf.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been tough on <laughs> your turf. I'm not, betting the,
1: I'm not betting the farm on it. <laughs> I don't blame you.
0: But uh, Colin, thank you for taking the time to chat a bit of City and a bit of the Manchester Derby today. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Jack.